Good morning, church. God is good. And all the time. Uh, Especially as we think about this Easter season, it's um, time to celebrate the, uh, the coming of our Lord and the resurrection of our Lord and who He is and what He's done for us and what He's doing in us and what He's doing around us. And um, Chris, thank you for the worship music this morning. Appreciate it. It was nice just to sit and marinate in the worship of Jesus this morning. And um, aren't you thankful for the Sabbath where we get to pull away and just kind of remember who we are and whose we are and what this life is all about? It's not about the lists that we didn't finish this week. It's not about all the things and the pressures that society and, and things put on us, but it's about being God's beloved. It's about being redeemed and restored in the love and the life of Jesus. And uh, when it's all said and done, that's what it's all about. So it's good to be here together as God's people. And uh, I wanted to start a three-week series on the Easter season. And being that we're Adventist and not uh, of the liturgical type, I'm a week ahead, all right? So I'm talking about the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem today, and technically that's not until next week if you are following uh, Palm Sunday and so forth. Uh, But I thought we would start with the triumph of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Next week we're scheduled for communion, so we'll look at the Lord's Supper and then uh, Easter Sabbath the weekend after that. Have you ever felt a profound sense of triumph. You know, maybe for some it's that sporting event where you trained and you trained and you trained. You know, I know we have a lot of runners in this church and, you know, some people who run half marathons and marathons and I just think you're flat out of your mind, but um, some of you just thrive on that. You know, you you actually get to the point where you get that runner's high. I've never gotten to that point, I don't think, you know, probably because I don't go far enough. Uh, I don't work through the pain to get to the high part, you know, but um, anyways, uh, I'm glad you enjoy that, and I can appreciate that you enjoy that, and, and uh, leave it at that. But you've had triumphs, and maybe sports events, or maybe at, at work, you know, the, the promotion you're hoping to get, or whatever it might be, in school, you, or maybe you experienced that triumph that comes with justice, you know, um, I had an experience, and, and, and this isn't like a big justice thing, but when you're a student, it's a big justice thing. And uh, I didn't know until I was halfway through uh, college that I wanted to go into ministry, into pastoral ministry. And so my first couple years in college, I was studying, uh, I was trying to decide, you know, business, or, or I was doing music, and maybe I'll teach, and I didn't know. And, and then halfway through, God kind of got a hold of me, and, and I responded to a call and so I transferred to La Sierra University, and um, I transferred in as a junior, and I had done all my, you know, basics, my GE stuff the first couple of years, and so I was cramming in all the units with all the theology because I hadn't taken all of that. So I had the joy of taking anywhere from 22 to 27 units in a quarter, and it was just like, yeah, it was painful. And I was so glad I got married <laughs> while I was in those, that last year because I needed her to to remind me that I was going to live, you know, and that I was going to make it, and, and she would hold me at night when I was freaking out, you know, and all those types of things. Um, but I got to my senior year, and I was making sure I had everything ready to graduate, and the registrar told me that I needed to take English 101. 
And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> no, this, this, there's something wrong here. And I said, I already took English 101. And she's looking and she says, well, you know, the units from this school and what we do, they don't all match up. And so you're short two units. And I said, oh, no, this can't be. So, of course, my prayer life got really active, right? And I was saying, God, rescue me, right? Save me from this. And so I, uh, I said, this just isn't right. This just isn't right. I, I'm not going to not graduate because this isn't right. So I went to the chair of the English department, who at that time was Frank Knittel. And if you know Frank, he's a character. And uh, I liked having him on my side. I went, I had a class with him, and I always hated his class. Not because he wasn't a good teacher, he was a fabulous teacher, but he picked on me all the time. Because I was a theology major, so when you're studying early literature, you know, so let's talk to our resident theologian in the class today, you know, and uh, sinners in the hand of an angry God and all that type of stuff, you know. But I knew he liked me, and uh, so I went to him and I said, I'm, I'm having a problem. The registrar says that I'm not going to graduate because English 101, and I said, I already took English 101, and I transferred in. And he said, well, hold on, just, just stay there. So he gets on the phone. He calls the college that I came from. He talks to the registrar. He, I listen to this conversation. He hangs up the phone. He goes, just sit tight, John. He gets on the phone again. He gets on the phone with the registrar at La Sierra, and he says, Yes, I have John Ciccarelli sitting in front of me. I know you've had conversations with him. I've called the school he transferred from, and I want to tell you that John Ciccarelli is not taking one more unit of English from this university. He is done. <laughs> and I go, wow. <laughs> God is good all the time, you know? <laughs> and uh, he hung up the phone, and he said, there, it's taken care of. Anything else I can do for you? <laughs> I said, no, that should do it. Thank you very much. But I felt the triumph, you know, that day of yes. Yes, I, justice was served, right? I'm going to graduate. It's all going to be good, you know? Or have you ever been on the freeway? Uh, you're being tailgated by somebody. And I won't say maybe you're the tailgater, so I'm not going to say it, but you're being tailgated maybe by one of these big trucks, and you're driving along. I had this happen to me once, and I go, man alive, this guy's going to run right over me. And then I see in my side mirror a motorcycle with lights on it pop out and turn on those lights. And I'm like, yes, all right, justice is served. Now, for some reason, we don't feel that justice is being served when they're for us, right? That's when we go, no, 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 no. You don't, I didn't do anything wrong, you know? It didn't, it didn't happen. But we have these feelings of triumph in different ways. And that's what our, our narrative today in Matthew is about. It's about triumph, and they call it the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But why was it called triumphal? We're going to look at that. Now, all four of the Gospels talk about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, into this Passion Week. But I'm going to base it out of Matthew's mostly, and I'll draw a little bit from the others. But if you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, we'll also put it on the screen if you prefer that. It's the first 11 verses. And Matthew starts off, he says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. And tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. This is from Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, one thing that's important to remember, remember Matthew's writing after the event, and he's showing how Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. And if you were to read John's account, John would remind you that none of these things really made sense till after Jesus was resurrected. And so Matthew goes on, he says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. 
A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now it's interesting as Jesus is coming from the Mount of Olives, and he's coming down about two miles outside of Jerusalem. We think about all the healing that he did. He had just resurrected Lazarus from the dead. He had restored the vision of a couple of blind men recently. Many miracles that he had done, and these people start to get this idea that, hey, maybe this is the Messiah. This is the one. If he's, if he's raising people from the dead and people who are blind can now see and people who couldn't talk can now speak and people who are possessed are now free and, and he can feed thousands of people with a, with a couple of loaves and some fish, what an amazing king can provide everything for us. And so here they come, coming down from Mount of Olives. And Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus knows that he is making a statement that I am the Messiah. I am the king you've been looking for. And he tells them, go get the donkey, bring them in. And so as Zechariah pointed out, as we read, they knew this is one of the signs of the Messiah. And even further down in Zechariah, if you were to read chapter 14, you would see that the Messiah would be coming from the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus is very intentional about what he's doing to say, I am your king. I am your Messiah. I'm the one you've been looking for. Now, this is in great contrast to the rule of Rome. Now, Jerusalem at this time, it's the beginning of Passover. And Jerusalem, scholars say, could typically had about 40,000 people in Jerusalem. But when it was time for the Passover, they would have up to 200,000 people. So imagine the city just jam-packed for the festivities. And here's Jesus with these people coming down from the Mount of Olives. And they're starting to hear this commotion in Jerusalem. They're starting to hear this noise coming down. And they're shouting out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now a couple of biblical scholars also said it wouldn't be uncommon for Pilate, who was in charge of things there for Rome, to be coming in at times on his horse and with his military marching in because they were coming in, especially at this time of the year, to make sure things didn't get out of hand during Passover when you had 200,000 people packing the city for this event. So here's Pilate coming in on his horse, power, authority. And here comes Jesus coming in on a donkey, humble and gentle, the King of Kings and the Messiah. I want to share with you uh, a paragraph from Ellen White's uh, description of Jesus' triumphal entry, and she shares this beautiful paragraph. It says, Never before had the world seen such a triumphal procession. It was not like that of the earth's famous conquerors, no train of mourning captives as trophies of kingly valor made a feature of that scene. But about the Savior were the glorious trophies of his labors of love for sinful man. There were the captives whom he had rescued from Satan's power, praising God for their deliverance. The blind whom he had restored to sight were leading the way. The dumb whose tongues he had loosed shouted the loudest hosannas. The cripples whom he had healed bounded with joy and were the most active in breaking the palm branches and waving them before the Savior. Widows and orphans were exalting the name of Jesus for his works of mercy to them. The lepers whom he had cleansed spread their untainted garments in his path. 
and hailed him as the king of glory. Those whom his voice had awakened from sleep of death were in that throng. Lazarus, whose body had seen corruption in the grave, but who had now rejoiced in the strength of glorious manhood, led the beast on which the Savior rode. Isn't that a beautiful description? Can you imagine it? The freedom these people experienced and the triumph they were looking forward to from Rome that this king and this Messiah was going to continue forth in their presence. Well, it says, as we were looking at the verse, it uses a word here that describes what started happening in the city in verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and was asked, who is this? Now, this, this translation in the NIV doesn't really do justice because that word stirred is actually a Greek word where we get our word for um, seismology, right? When we study earthquakes and the shaking of the earth, seismographs, this is where that word comes from. Seismology, seismology thank you. And that's where we get this word from, to understand that things weren't just being sir, uh, stirred, but shaken. And this same word is used when Jesus is crucified on the cross and the temple bell tears. The same word for earthquake is used when the angel comes and speaks and comes to the tomb. So things were just stirring. Things were getting shaken up. When Jesus came into town, it was shaking things up quite a bit. What's going on here? What is happening that this Jesus on the donkey is bringing about? If you were to read in Luke, Luke would tell you that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This was the moment Jesus was leading us to. The beginning of that week where he would be betrayed and ultimately go to the cross. He was making a very clear statement that he was king and he is king. And they were ready for him to be their king. But maybe not quite in the way that Jesus knew he needed to be their king. What was the triumph of Jesus? What was he moving toward? What was he looking forward? Because let's face it, he could have done many things in such a military way. He could have easily gone in and said, Pilate, you're done. Rome, you're done. He could have established his kingly throne right there. He could have brought all the powers to be to take care of Rome, but he didn't. And I'm glad he didn't. The thing I love about God is that he looks past the temporary situation to deal with the eternal. That he, we may experience pain and suffering, we, we may experience injustice, but he's moving us through so it can ultimately be done away with forever. And not just put band-aids on situations, not just temporary fixes, but eternal fixes. Can you imagine it someday when the King of Kings does come out of the clouds and comes to us to make this earth made new? There will be no more death, period. No more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more injustices because of what Jesus did that day when he went into Jerusalem, humble and meek and gentle. So he could go to the cross. He could die the death that we all deserved and be raised again so we can experience resurrection life. That's the type of God that we have, the type of king that we have. He's not satisfied unless he takes care of everything completely and thoroughly. In fact, as he approached Jerusalem, Luke also states, it says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Picture him on the donkey with all the hosannas, and he's weeping. 
And he says to Jerusalem, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. It's him. It's Jesus. It's the king, gentle and humble and loving. He dealt with sin, evil and wickedness. And as I mentioned, the final enemy, death, will be no more, according to 1 Corinthians 15. He is triumphant over sin, over evil, and over wickedness. And church, the good news is that he has come. He is coming again. But he continues to come every day in our life in many different ways. And here's the thing where I think we often get distracted is that in our society, we look for the pomp. We look for the glory. We look for the big extravagant. We're trained that way, it seems, through, through TV and through all the different things of, you know, you've got to do this. You've got to. This is the best. And yet Jesus comes in in gentleness and meek and in humble ways. He comes sometimes through the poor, through those who are weak, through those who are broken, gentle, humble, riding on a donkey. He comes sometimes in work situations and sometimes in, maybe if we're playing a sport or in school, And sometimes that person seems weak or that person seems unpopular or that person is somebody that most people don't want to associate with. There's a good chance his kingdom is breaking through there somewhere. Because that's when Jesus was on earth, often when the kingdom was breaking through. Caring for the weak, caring for the poor, caring for the outcasts. That's what he was doing. That's what he was about. When the king and his kingdom break through, and it still does all the time, how might it be appearing? Often not in the glamorous, not in the strong, not in the popular. In fact, you know, um, I try not to. They tell you when you're studying homiletics, how to preach. Never preach your pet peeves. And I've always tried not to do that. But I'm going to slip a little one in right now. All right? (laughs) I... uh, listening to Christian radio, and uh, there's an ad that comes on every once in a while. It just makes me cringe every once in a while. And it says, are you called to be famous for God? Have you heard that one? Yeah, right? And I, I don't, I'm not, they may be doing a wonderful thing. Maybe I'm just completely misunderstanding it. But God doesn't need us to be famous for him. He needs us to be humble for him. He needs us to empty ourselves for him. He needs us to come alongside who aren't the glamorous. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't work through people who have position and title and, and celebrity to say wonderful things and to do wonderful things. I'm not questioning that. I've stopped trying to figure out all the ways that God breaks through in his kingdom because you can't. And they're beyond the ways that we can understand. But I do know that pretty regularly it happens in the ways that we would never predict. And it's usually in the meek and the weak, and the lowly, and the broken. And we give our attention sometimes to the things that go, wow, here's Pilate coming in on the horse with his military. And what about Jesus coming in on the donkey? Gentle and meek. I've always loved when Tony Campolo would say, I don't get it when Christian athletes get up on the podium and they won, and they're like, I just thank God because he gave me the victory today. 
And he goes, and then I look at second and third place and go, how do they feel, you know? What about me, God? You don't like me? You know, I didn't get first place. But you know, winning, especially in sports, and I love sports, and we have athletes here today, and I really don't think Jesus cares about whether we win or lose on the scoreboard. The real winning or losing happens on the court as we interact with the other team and the other teammates. And the kingdom is going on all over the place on those courts and on those ball fields. It all depends on how we react to the person who just trash-talked us because they had a great play in front of us. It all depends on how we react and how we respond when people throw those cheap shots or how coaches react and respond to their players. It happens all the time. To the bystander of life, it might appear that things just happen. But maybe the king, our king, is always up to something and very intentional about his reign of love, overcoming the reign of evil here on earth in some of the most unexpected, modest, and maybe even mundane events. And when the opportunity surfaces, will we have our branch? Will we throw our cloak on the ground before him? Will we add our voice to the Hosanna chorus of the angels and join his triumphant movement in the victory against Satan and the very real and very active power of evil among us and in our midst found everywhere from corporations to congregations? We are confronted with those choices often. The magazine, the Jewish magazine Moment, asked a number of Jewish writers and professors and rabbis and artists and actors the following question. What does the concept of the Messiah mean today? Here are some of their responses. One rabbi said, years ago, a popular evangelical bumper sticker read, I found it. The Jewish version would read, I'm still looking for it. (laughs) One literature professor said, who at different times in their life hasn't had a belief that someone, a Messiah, can, can help them and help the world? And the Messiah is the biggest answer to the biggest single question, does God care about me? One reporter said, people have stopped believing in God and the possibility of miracles and the mystical and in that most mystical belief of all, the idea that somebody's going to come along and make the world all better. I think that's a sad development of the modern world. One sociology professor said, for most Jews, the messianic idea has receded. It's not on the top of the agenda, and they don't see history as inexorably moving to that day. One novelist, he may be around the corner, but that's where he should always be. In the Jewish tradition, sitting idly waiting for the Messiah is a sin. And one playwright professor said, most people think the Messiah has already come, but, Jesus are wa- but Jews are waiting it could be anybody. It's a, and I'm going to change a word here. It's a very intriguing idea. And then she said this, there's a blind date with the sacred that awaits you at any moment. Now here's someone who's waiting still for the Messiah, but I want to suggest to us today that for every day for us, there is a, not a blind date because we know him, but dates all throughout the day of working with the Messiah as he triumphantly breaks into our world in different ways, in strange ways, in ways that we just never could dream up or imagine. I I was thinking about one one story, the story of Jackie Robinson. I don't know how many of you saw the movie 42, but it was a profound movie about Jackie Robinson's life in baseball. 
Now we could look at that and say, oh, it's a great movie about baseball, and obviously it's a great movie about justice and equality in this world. And as I watched that movie and revisited the story, I was just, I was excited and heartbroken all at the same time. As I was excited about what was happening, what was breaking through, but I was saddened by how horrible we could treat other human beings. And there's a scene in the movie, and I don't know that this literally happened or not, but, but I love that it happened in the movie, and I have to imagine that maybe there were conversations like this, but the owner of the Dodgers was having a conversation with the owner of the uh, Philadelphia team, and the owner of the Philadelphia team had called the owner of the Dodgers to say, if Jackie Robinson's on the field, we're not playing. And... Uh, the owner of the Dodgers, played by Harrison Ford, said, well, I'm really sorry to hear that because that's going to be a forfeit. We're going to show up. And you're going to lose zero to nine. And I love what he said next. He said to the owner of the Phillies, he says, do you think God likes baseball? Do you think God likes baseball, Herb, he says. Herb says, well, what's that supposed to mean? And I love what he said. He says, it means someday you're going to meet God. And when he inquires as to why you didn't take the field against Robinson in Philadelphia, and you answer that it's because he was a Negro, it may not be a sufficient reply. <laughs> and I love that. Because even in baseball, the kingdom was breaking through in a huge way. God can use any means, baseball, work, home, you name it. He's constantly coming through. And he comes through in ways that we would never imagine. And yet every day in our life, all around us, every day, several times in the day, he's humbly breaking through and coming through and inviting us to join him. But here's the other amazing thing. I love what Paul said when he says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but what? Christ lives in me. So if Christ lives in me, that means he reigns in me. And so not only am I looking for kingdom moments to join him in, I am one of his kingdom moments, being brought into relationships and workplaces and schools and ball fields to say, Hosanna, the king is here. The son of David has arrived, and he is making things right. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we honor you today and we praise you for who you are. That while oftentimes the world values the pomp and the circumstance, we thank you that you are humble and gentle. That you are patient and you're kind and that you are the one who isn't satisfied with fixing everything in a temporary way. You love us so much you're moving towards fixing everything in an eternal way. And so we are overjoyed that you have come as our king and that you come every day in our lives and you come every day through our lives until one day you come back and it is finished. It is all made new. The final enemy death is done away with. And so give us eyes to see, ears to hear, actions to work with you as we see you working in our day-to-day -day lives in humble, gentle, meek, and maybe even mundane ways. And may we be content to move in gentleness and meekness and humility with you.
take a moment now in silent prayer just to speak to your king this morning. Amazing love, I know it's 
my joy to honor you in all I do. I As we go, may we enjoy the reality that our God reigns and be looking for Him in the simple, maybe mundane, usual ways and be His agent of reign in this earth. Amen.